morning, church. Good to see you. Hi. Great to see you here. Welcome if you're visiting today. It's a especially warm welcome to you. It's quiet this morning, isn't it? Look at that. Last week I thought it was quiet because the sun was bright and shining. This week it's so dark and rainy that everyone's sitting in their nice warm beds. Anyway, great to see you all. Uh, If you're visiting with us, a very warm welcome to you. Um, As a church, we're on a very exciting journey. This, This week I've been really reflecting on where we've come to as a church and where we're going, what our dream is. Uh, I remember when we, we kicked the church off, a prophecy came, just in fact, myself and Angie were moving through from Glasgow to Edinburgh to start the church here 11 and a half years ago, and a prophecy came about the church, and it was, um, the, the, when, we, when we came through to Edinburgh, our responsibility was to share and to gather, to reach the lost, to love the unlovable, and to show compassion to those who've never felt it. That's our mission. And you know, looking back, that's exactly what we're all about. We're about reaching the lost. We're here to impact. We want to impact every person in Edinburgh with the best news ever, that there's a God in heaven who loves them, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for them. And he's risen, and you can have a new life through him. That's the message we want to proclaim throughout this whole city. As it says in the book of Acts, they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. We want to touch Edinburgh. Alongside the other churches, they're doing their job too. And we want to show compassion to those who have never felt it. We want to love people. We want to meet needs. We want to make an impact. That's what we're all about. So if you're visiting with with us today and you're wondering, I'm looking for a church to be part of, well, we invite you to come with us in this journey. We are here to make an impact. We're looking forward to the summer season. Lots of exciting things lined up uh, that we can make an impact with. And uh, we're looking forward to the the whole year ahead with the students returning after summer and and all the different things happening. Uh, God is with us, and uh, we're on an exciting journey. So please pray with us, church. Please get involved, muck in, play your part. And I believe, see, when when it comes to vision and, and purpose, it's not my vision, this church. It's his vision. And we all, including me, get to be part of it. That's the exciting thing of what we're doing. Great, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much you're with us. Holy Spirit, thank you you're with us in in the inside of us, but also you're in amongst us, God. In your presence, anything is possible. God, we know with you, lives can be changed in this auditorium today. You know every single person here, God. You have a plan and a purpose for them. And I pray that as we turn to the Bible just now, that you would grip us, God, with some great truths. You speak to us, and you change our lives for the better. Come and have your way among us, God. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, today I'm going to be talking to you about, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working through, uh, we're three weeks into it now, and we're going to be, this is the beginning of an epic series we're on, and it should take us several months to work our way through it. We're in week three of Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at the whole subject of humility. Uh, or, or pride is the flip side. Let me read to you an, uh, a little account from someone who had an accident. He's writing to his insurance company. He says, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information. In block three, in the accident form, I told you that the accident was caused because I was too proud to ask for help. Pride's a big problem. As the cause of my accident, and you asked in the letter that I should explain more fully what went wrong in the accident. So here are the details of the accident. I'm a bricklayer by trade, and on the date of the accident, I was working alone, trying to do it myself, too proud to ask for help, on the roof of a six-story building. When I completed my work, I found that I had 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up on the roof, swung the barrel out and loaded it up with bricks. Then it went back to the ground, untied the rope and holding tightly to ensure the slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block 11 of the accident report that I weigh 135 pounds. But by all of a sudden, out of surprise, I was jerked off the ground so suddenly that I lost my presence of mind. I forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say that I proceeded rather rapidly, at a rapid rate up the side of the building and in the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down which explained my fractured skull and broken collarbone. 
slowing only slightly, I continued a rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hands, uh, where the two knuckles embedded deeply into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and I was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. Approximately at the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out the barrel. Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel's weight then weighed 50 pounds, uh, and I refer to my weight again, 135 pounds. As you can imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for my two fractured ankles and lacerations on my legs and lower body area. The encounter with the barrel only slowed me down enough to lessen my injuries when I fell on the pile of bricks. Unfortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there in the bricks in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel three, six, six stories above me, again I lost the presence of minds. I let go of the rope and the empty barrel weighing more than the rope, so it came back down on me and broke both my legs. I hope I furnished you with enough information that you required. <laughs> I hope that wasn't a true story. Too proud, had to do it by myself. Humility is a massive quality in life. Jesus, in the third beatitude, that's what they're called, the beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. He comes to this one, blessed are the meek. His statement about humility and his whole ethos, in fact, the whole Bible's ethos about humility, completely goes against the grain of what any of us have been used to. It went against the grain of what the people in Jesus' time understood. It completely cut against his own culture. And also, the same statement rattles us in our culture. It goes against the grain of how we would do life, of how we're told the best way to do life is. But actually, the wisdom in what he he says and what he teaches on is clearly evidenced in the Bible and also in our lives. In Jesus' time, let's before I read the statement that Jesus made from the Beatitudes, let me kind of put it in context. Let's look at what it was actually like to be around in Jesus' time and therefore the frame of mind that the people were in when Jesus made the statements he made about meekness. Around about 63 BC, Pompey annexed Palestine for Rome and brought an end to Jewish independence. For years leading up to that, the Jewish nation had been independent. That had come at a very high price at the Maccabite Rebellion. The Jews absolutely resented being under Rome. They were slaves to Rome. And Rome, as far as they were concerned, were pagans, they were Gentiles, and Jews hated pagans and Gentiles. So they deeply resented being under their authority. In fact, in the New Testament, all the lands that are mentioned in the New Testament were under Rome's authority. The shadow of Caesar was cast over the entire of the New Testament. Jews hated being under this slavery, and in fact, they refused to acknowledge that they were slaves to Rome. That's why in John 8, 33, speaking to Jesus, they said, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves to anyone. <laughs> they refused to acknowledge that they were slaves to Rome. The Jewish people had a hope. In the midst of their survival under Rome, they had a hope. Their hope was that one day a Messiah, a king would come. This hope was fueled by all the prophets who for hundreds of years had been predicting and prophesying that one would come. He would be the king he would be the Messiah. He would be the deliverer. He would liberate Israel. He would bring God's people out of slavery into freedom, into a new life. And this was the predictions they all carried, they all hoped for, they all believed in. So people were carrying these hopes. The hopes were fueled even more when John the Baptist came along and he was starting to speak about a coming one. He said that he was there to prepare the way for the Lord. So people were in anticipation man, the time is coming near. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus' message, Mark 1.15, is the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. This was it. It seemed like this was the one. Their hopes were sky high and anticipation was in the air. Now, there was two main groupings that you need to be aware of in in the Jewish community. There was the zealots. They were violent and military people. And then there was the Pharisees. They were theologians. The zealots believed that the Messiah would be a conquering warrior who would physically fight against Rome and defeat them and bring about Jewish independence. That's how the zealots expected 
Jesus or the Messiah to be. And they did everything they could to undermine Rome. They were a bit like a kind of guerrilla warfare group. While they didn't have huge numbers, they would kind of at nighttime go on covert missions and they would assassinate various Romans authority, uh, Roman leaders and so on. And it really enraged the Romans. And you can imagine that when that sort of thing happens, uh, there was backlash and the Romans would come and, and would kind of bring revenge on the Jewish people for the assassination of some of their key leaders. And this went on and on and on, this, this, the zealots kind of rising against the Roman oppression, and the Romans kept coming and crushing the, the Jews as a result. And this went on up until 70 AD, 40 years after the resurrection. And in 70 AD, we see the, the Romans said, enough is enough, and they came and they annihilated Jerusalem. 70 AD, 1.1 million Jews in Jerusalem were slaughtered. Temple was, was flattened, every stone was taken down. This was the ultimate end. Following that, Emperor Hadrian in 130 AD came and destroyed 985 towns and villages around Palestine. He almost nearly annihilated the entire nation. The Romans were just hacked off with these zealots constantly trying to eroding and undermining their authority. So that's the zealots. On the other hand, you had the, the Pharisees. Now they were theologians. Their expectation wasn't so much that Jesus would be a warrior, a conqueror, but more that Jesus would be like Moses, a miracle worker. And just as Moses worked the, the great miracles and the plagues in Egypt, so Jesus, God would use to, the, the, the Messiah would be used to perform great miracles against the Romans, to defeat the Romans, and then they would gain independence and the Messiah would be the king. That was the, the Pharisees' hope. Now, the Pharisees watched Jesus and they saw him do the miracles. They saw the blind eyes open. They saw the the lame people walking. They saw the leprosy instantly cured and the skin becoming like a child's skin. They saw the dead being raised. They saw all this stuff and they thought, man, this must be him. But their frustration was this, that he never used his miraculous power against the Romans. And furthermore, he spoke out frequently against the Jews. And he never spoke out against the Romans. You see, throughout the Gospels, consistently he's, he's reprimanding the Jews for their utter hypocrisy, for their narrow-mindedness, for their bigotedness, for their racism. Jesus is constantly reprimanding the, the Jewish kind of hypocrites, but he really, if at all, in the Gospels, comes against Rome, never once. And this enraged the Pharisees. So the zealots weren't satisfied because Jesus wasn't being the warrior king. In fact, at one place, they tried to take him by force. John six fifteen says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus, that was not his agenda. And the Pharisees were frustrated that he wasn't using his miracle powers against the Romans, and he wasn't speaking out against the Romans. So their frustration became disillusionment, and disillusionment became bitterness, and they crucified him. And as they crucified him, they were not understanding in the slightest God's big agenda. See, Jesus never came to be king over a little bit of land in Palestine. Jesus came to be king of kings, lord of lords. He didn't come for one people, he came for all peoples. He came to rule and reign over the universe. He is the Messiah, sure, but he's far greater, he's much more of a deliverer than just a deliverer of the Jews. He's the deliverer of anyone who has faith in him. And he's not delivering you from the oppression of the Romans. He's delivering you from yourself, your sin, and potential hell. You need a savior. You personally need a deliverer. That's a bigger subject. This isn't a political solution to a short-term problem. This is an eternal solution to the eternal problem called sin in humankind. Religion cannot remove your sin. Being a better person cannot remove your sin. You need a savior. Jesus died in your place on the cross. That was what the cross was all about. He became your substitute. He took your place so that you can have forgiveness and eternal life. So we have all these expectations. The Jews wanted this type of Messiah who was going to be this warrior who would conquer, who would fight, who would be vehement. And in the context of all those aspirations and expectations, Jesus comes and says this, and I believe this is what you could call the manifesto of his kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they're the ones who shall inherit the earth. They're the ones who are going to take the grounds. They're the ones who are going to conquer. 
blessed are the meek. Now, the Pharisees and the zealots didn't like that. They wanted to hear, blessed are the dominant, blessed are the proud, blessed are the aggressive. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Now, here we are, and that's shocking in those days. It riled them. It was not what they hoped for or wanted. And because Jesus didn't fit their agenda, they crucified him. And you know what? Today, many people want God to fit their agenda rather than coming in line with what his agenda is. They're saying, God, I'll accept you, but you've got to do life in my terms. Uh Uh-uh. You do life in God's terms. That was shocking in that day. It was shocking. It was not what the Jews expected. But here we are now, 2,000 years on, and this statement is just as shocking. You see, in our mindset, ground takers aren't the meek. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Blessed are the meek, for they're the ones who will inherit. You see, we've, we're living in a secular history. Our, our history tells us that our society, in our society, the macho, the do-your-own-thing mentality, that characterizes all our heroes. We've got the history of people like Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, Genghis Khan of the Mongol Empire, even the British Empire, Hitler with the Nazis, Napoleon, people who were bold, who were aggressive, who were self-reliant, who were self-sufficient. That's, that's the conquerors as far, that our history tells us about, people who dominated and domineered others. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, actually, no, it's, it's the meek who shall inherit the earth. So what we've got to do is, now, some of us are reacting against this because we have a definition of meek that he's not talking about. We think meek is something that he's not saying it is. So what does meek mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you were a kid who has a slightly suppressed personality because you have had a heavy-handed mother or father, right? It's not talking about that. Or it's not talking about you had kind of quietly spoken parents, so you become a quietly spoken individual. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about someone who's kind of hesitant about their opinions or not kind of confident in life. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about quiet, shy people, retiring people. It's not talking about people who will compromise just for the sake of keeping the peace. You know, just don't rock the boat. It's not talking about that. Because for many of us, this idea of humility, we've seen humble people and we see them as walkovers. It's not what he's talking about. And I hope to prove through some of the illustrations I give today that it's anything but that. You see, meekness, many people see as, well, that's the people who have got, they're introverts. And proud people are extroverts. And I want to dispel that. It's nothing to do with how you appear to people. You see, you could be an introvert, and you're very quiet and very retiring, and yet, under the surface, you're full of pride. You're totally into yourself. You just don't talk about it. You're totally arrogant. You think you're better than everyone else. You just kind of, I'll quietly pretend that I'll let them think they're better than me. You know, that's just, that's not humility. Or equally, you could have someone who's an extrovert and confident and outgoing, and yet in their heart, they're so incredibly humble. Humility, while it does touch on the way you relate with people, it's more to do with how you relate with God. It's more to do with your knowing of who you are before God. And that will absolutely have an impact on how you deal with other people. Humility. When we look in the, the Beatitudes, we've been going on a journey the last three weeks. The first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last week, that was the second beatitude, it was, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This week it's, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I see a progression. I see a progression through this. The progression is this. You've got someone who's poor in spirit. What's that? Well, they're saying, without God, I'm nothing. I'm spiritually deprived. I need God's. That's what a poor in spirit person says. Step one. Step two, you have someone who's mourning over this sinful condition. Man, I'm a sinner. This is a barrier between me getting to God. I've recognized my need of God, but I've got sin, and I've got to deal with this. And, and that's what we talked about last week. It's actually an incredibly positive characteristic, and it brings hope. And now it leads to meekness. You know, if, in the light of all that, flip, how could I be proud? You know, I need God's. I've got mess in my life. Not much to be proud about there. So typically, and this is one half of it, typically people associate humility with 
You know, you're aware of your weaknesses in life. So people associate humility with that. And it is that. John Flavel says, they cannot, they that know God will be humble. And they that know themselves cannot be proud. Okay, so on one side, it is about, man, I know my weaknesses. How could I be proud? There's a truth in that. But let me point out that Jesus referred to himself as meek. And there wasn't any sin or weaknesses in him. All right? So my point is that meekness isn't just to do with weakness. And meekness isn't a weakness. Meekness in Jesus wasn't to do with the fact he had sinned because he didn't have sin. So what is meekness then? Well, I believe meekness is to do with your strength as well. Let's look at the journey again. So we've got poor in spirit. This relates to weakness. Man, without God, I'm, I'm zip. I need God. You're aware of your weakness. The next step is you mourn. You're aware of sin and that's a weakness. Man, I, I need forgiveness. And God gives you forgiveness and that's comfort. But when it comes to meekness, it's not just talking about your weaknesses. It does a bit. It's referring to the journey you've just gone on. Man, I need God. I'm a sinner. So you're not proud of yourself. But at the same time, it's also to do with your strengths. Here's what the actual word means. Meekness is the Greek words paraons, which means mild, humble, gentleness of spirit. The same word that is used by the Greeks to describe a gentle breeze, a soothing medicine, or a domesticated horse. A gentle breeze, a soothing medicine, or a domesticated horse. A gentle breeze is pleasant, especially yesterday. Intense heat, bit of a breeze, that's nice. But you have a hurricane, and that could become devastating. A medicine can bring you health, can bring you healing. But you have an overdose, it could kill you. A domesticated horse is very useful, very purposeful. A wild horse is danger. Humility isn't so much to do with, man, I'm a weak person, right? It's more to do with, you've got great strengths, but those strengths are under control. The wild horse, the wild horse that's so free and independent and it doesn't care what damage it causes to others, it just it sees itself as free and independent. But the reality is it's a danger and it will never fulfill its ultimate potential. But that wild horse, when it's tamed, it's not that the wild horse loses any of its strength. It's not that the wild horse becomes a weakling. It's still got all its strength. The difference now is, however, that it's less reliant on itself and it's more reliant on its trainer. And this is a good example of what meekness is all about. You've got to tame that wild horse. We're wild horses by nature. We want to be free spirits. We don't care about who we hurt on the way to achieving our goals. We're kind of domineering. We push our way through. But God's saying, we've got to be humble, not, not just because of our weaknesses, but we've got to bring our strengths under God. And then all of a sudden, our strengths can become a massive power in the hands of God. I believe meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. John Ruskin said this, I believe that the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I don't mean by humility, doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking his opinion. Great men, really great men, have a feeling that greatness is not in them but through them. They could not be or do anything else than other than what God made them to be. You have a person who is who has got strength, but the strength is under control. Then you can have a you can have a man, you know, I I can give you a wife and kids. I can trust you with them. Your strength's under control. You've got a business person and, and they've got all these great qualities, God-given gifts, and yet they're humble. You can, God will say, wow, I can entrust that person with great business success because their strength's under control. They will inherit the earth. You know, that, that you have someone who's, who's a leader. Wow, I can entrust that person with a great church because their strength's under control. They're not abusing their power. You're someone who handles finances well. I can trust that person with financial provision, prosperity, because their strength's under control. You're faithful with the small, you'll be entrusted with the big. 
Jesus, when he's talking about the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he's actually quoting from a psalm, Psalm 37. And if we go back into Psalm 37, as we do just now, we'll, we'll see a definition of what meekness is about from the psalm. Psalm 37, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the lands. Around that verse, there's a whole lot of things that point towards what it actually means to be meek. Let's look at them. The first thing is, is that meek people commit their way and trust in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. This is someone who's not primarily self-reliant. It's not someone who's got no abilities. It's someone who's choosing to yield their abilities to God. And they're not just pushing through their own agenda. They're saying, God, I'm going to commit my way to you. I'm going to trust you. You're going to bring me through this. The word commit to the Lord, the word commit there in in the Hebrew language, this is the Old Testament Hebrew, is galal, which means to roll over onto the Lord. So God's saying here, roll your life over onto him. Roll your concerns over onto him. Roll your financial worries over onto him. Roll your relationship worries, roll them onto him. George Muller, the great leader who headed up many orphan houses around the UK many, many years ago. And he was a great man of faith. He pioneered so much in his generation that made a huge impact. Well, George Muller, he had a hugely busy schedule and many demands on his life. And on one particular day, it was a very high pressure day, lots of stuff was happening. One person came to George Muller and said, how is it in the midst of all this, you remain so calm, so together, and so at peace in the midst of all this intensity? And George Muller replied and said this, I rolled 60 things onto God before breakfast this morning. <laughs> I wrote, and, and what George Muller's practice would be before breakfast, he would just open up his Bible and he'd start reading, doing his Bible reading for the day. And as he's Bible reading, worries about the day would start to creep into his mind. And as each one came, he would name them before God and roll them back onto God. He'd put them onto his shoulders. Just as God said we should, cast your care on him because he cares for you. A meek person doesn't just press through with their own agenda. They say, I need God. I put things onto him. Meek people will be still and wait before the Lord. It says in Psalm 37 verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Wait for the Lord. Don't force through your agenda. Wait for the Lord. It's arrogance to force through your agenda. Meek people are not weak people. They've just got power that's under control. They're bringing their lives and their agenda under God's life and agenda. So they wait on him. I remember this came to me so vividly. When me and Angie started dating, our first date one of the things that came up in chit-chat, I trained as an architect, so I, you're obviously I'm thinking about you know, my future house. I mean, it's the ultimate architect's dream to build their own house. And so I was talking to Angie about, you know, I'd love to convert a barn. And I described it to her in great detail. And she said, that's amazing. So she, that evening, we popped by her flat and she showed me a sketch she'd done just uh, while she was studying. And she just kind of got distracted and did a wee doodle of the house she wanted to live in in, in the years ahead. And she'd, she'd done a doodle of what I described. Anyway, so we always had this in our heads, we want to buy a barn eventually. So we started the church in a rented flat in Haymarket 11 years ago. We bought our first little one-bed terrace colony house up in Shandon up here a couple of years after. And then Becky was born. Now we had one bedroom, so it was all getting a bit cramped and we were planning more, so we thought we need another place. Now in the architect's office, I had this great opportunity. I knew this developer and he just bought a big plot of land up at Merkerson. Fantastic, huge, big plot. There was an old coach house in the back garden. I was planning I'm going to make an out of it. So before market offer, and I could see the opening, I could see the opportunity, and I could see I could probably get a good deal. So I was about to just go headstrong, pursue this dream, because it seemed so perfect. And I said, well, well, God, do you want to do this? And I heard God say, clear as a bell, no, wait. That's so frustrating when that happens. You spiritual bunch don't get frustrated by that kind of thing. But I got frustrated by that. No, wait. Because I'm a proactive guy. I like making happen. That's me. So no, wait. You bring your strength under control. You've got the ability to make happen, but you choose to do it his way. No, wait. Okay. Anyway, two weeks later, Angie's folks turn up at our house one evening 
and they show us this kind of brochure of this phenomenal big house they're buying. And I said, we're thinking of buying this house, and it's, flipping, it's a brochure, it's not like a sheet of A4, it's a brochure. I'm like, man, this is fantastic, look at the size of this thing. Anyway, they get to the last page in the brochure, and it had a picture of a little coach house at the back of their land. It's like an Asda deal, you got a house, you got one free. <laughs> and I thought, oh wow, that's great. We didn't want to say anything to them, but after they left, I said, Angie, that's our dream. But we didn't want to put pressure on them. So anyway, they went away, they bought the house, and then they came to us and said, would you guys like to buy that from us? We said, we would love to thank you very much. And it was already done up. So here's the thing. No wait came, but two weeks later, an even bigger answer, I could not have known that. So my testimony is this. You wait on the Lord's. He has a bigger and better agenda than you could ever imagine. So don't go headstrong into your agendas. Wait on God's. Commit your way to the Lord. This is humility. Humility is actively, it's not saying you're a weakling. It's saying you've got great strength. And do you know what? You could probably could make some stuff happen in life by yourself. But let's do it God's way. Let's submit ourselves to him. And according to God's, you're the one who will inherit the land. Can you trust God with your finances? Can you trust God with your business? Can you trust God with your family? Can you trust God that he will get your husband or wife? Or are you just going to plow on headstrong and make it happen yourself? Here's some other Bible examples of people who are meek. There's Abraham. Genesis 13, we see Abraham. Uh, he was a great man. Father of faith. The official father of the Jewish race and the Arab race. Here he was and God had promised him a land very clearly. His nephew Lot was kind of a hitchhiker. He was coming along with him and Lot was just kind of tagging along and because of Abraham, Lot was doing well as well and Abraham had huge herds of cattle and flocks of sheep and Lot had plenty as well. Because of the, the demand on the land because of all their, all their sheep and flocks, there was a bit of friction between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham. So Abraham said, listen, we need to go our own ways here and I'm not going to push my agenda here. Just you choose where you want to go and I'll go somewhere different. You know, total humility. Out of the two of them, Abraham was the one who had the right to the land according to God. And yet with humility, he gave first choice to his younger nephew Lot and said, go, you choose where you want to go. So Lot went off to the nicest part. And then a few verses later, if you read it in Genesis 13, only a few verses after that, after that great act of humility and great security, a few verses after, God appears to Abraham and says to him, I'm giving you the lands to your north, to your south, to your east, and to your west. See, Abraham had great security knowing that he didn't need to push a human agenda because the land was his. He had great humility. Okay, here's Joseph. Joseph, he went through major struggles. He was a slave, then he was a prisoner. But then he comes out prime minister. Prime minister of Egypt. Now, at that time, Egypt was the world-leading superpower. Joseph became second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, the prime minister. And he was responsible for huge areas of, uh, the, of, the, of the nation, but also he became literally a deliverer for the surrounding nations as he provided food for the surrounding nations during a famine. Now, his brothers had previously sold him into slavery. And now his brothers, not knowing it was Joseph in power, had come to ask for food. And they came and stood before Joseph. Now, I guess Joseph... Because all the Egyptians put makeup and stuff on. Kind of weird headdresses. They, they just didn't look the same anymore. So they said, welcome, he said. And they didn't recognize him because he usually stood like that. You know. Now he was, so he was very different. So they didn't recognize him. And, it, and he, didn't, he deliberately kept seeing it. But he was, now, he was now prime minister. Now he had the authority. He had within his power just to kill them. They tried to kill him. They'd renounced their brother years ago. They'd sold him into slavery. In fact, they were planning to kill him. The second plan was we'll sell him to slavery. They had no good intention towards him. And now he was in power, but his power was under control. And instead of yielding his power to bring wrath on them, he, he was humble. He submitted his power to God. And he brought blessing to them. Meekness isn't weakness. Not at all. All the people I'm reading of here are very powerful people. It's just that their power was under control. They weren't loose cannons. They weren't running free, doing their own thing. They were living for not their agenda, 
but for God's agenda. Then there's Moses. Listen to this it's a statement about Moses. It says, Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were in the face of the earth. Numbers 12, 3. <laughs> now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people in the face of the earth. The ironic thing about that verse is that Moses wrote it. <laughs> That's like me, we're, we're producing a new website just now. It's like me, you know, on the staff page, coming to Peter Anderson and say, Peter, I have to say, he is the best pastor in Edinburgh. <laughs> very humble man. Moses, right, in the world's all-time bestseller, the Bible says, me, I'm the most meek man on the whole earth. Now, either he totally wasn't, or he absolutely had to be to even write that by himself, right? Okay, so big statement about meekness. So what's the context of that statement? What what happened before that verse? And what's the bits that happen after that verse? Okay, let's let's read the whole whole context. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses... Because of the Cushite woman that he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. You, just, you got that, didn't you? <laughs> and they said, Has the Lord indeed, indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out to him. And then it goes on to talk about how God vindicated Moses in front of them and said, listen guys, you're out of line. You're criticizing my man. Deal with your attitude. You can go read it yourself. So here's the question. Why was this verse about Moses' meekness caught between a pile of verses that are about an accusation against Moses followed by a verse that talks about God's vindication of Moses? You see, if the verse in the middle there about Moses' meekness was written about us, it'd be, it would go something like, Miriam and Aaron had something against us. And there's then there's us and say, who are you to have something against me? I'm the Lord's anointing. God's spoken to me, not you guys. And we would kind of fight our corner, wouldn't we? We'd fight our corner. We'd, say, we'd have our peace. You know, we'd say, that's what we would do. And then the rest of the verse probably wouldn't have happened. And if that verse hadn't been put there, if all you'd had was Moses, sorry, Aaron and Miriam having an accusation against Moses, and then God speaking up, you would have assumed Moses couldn't speak up for himself. You would have assumed that uh, Moses is a weakling, he couldn't handle criticism. He just kind of, okay. But that's not the case. The verse is there to tell you Moses' response. His response was, I'm not going to respond. His response was, he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And then what we see is God vindicated him. Isn't that amazing? This reveals the attitude of a meek person. Do you know what? They are so secure in God. It's not that Moses didn't have strength. It's that he was under control. Remember reading Oral Roberts' autobiography. Oral Roberts is famous in America for the healing movement. He was the first kind of major Christian preacher and healer that kind of toured America. Huge crowds of people. And it was utterly controversial. You know, a lot of religious people had a big problem with him doing this. A lot of the secular press were very cynical about it. He's an authentic guy, and he's the real deal. And he saw many great miracles. But interestingly, in his autobiography, it talks about the times when he was facing some of the most intense persecution, where he would find his name in newspapers, where religious people were criticizing him. And you know what his response was? Nothing. He made a choice. I'm not going to fight my own corner here. You see, arrogant people have to feel they have to fight their own corner. You don't have to fight your battles, folks. You can trust in God. And then we see David. David with Saul. He was David. God had called David to become the king. And then there was Saul. Now, he was the king before David, but he was a rebel. He was walking away from God. He was messed up in his thinking. Now, as far as God was concerned, Saul was rejected from kingship. And then one day, David and his men, they were on the run for their lives because Saul was hunting them. And they were hiding in a cave called the Cave of Adullam. And that day, Saul needed a pee. He, in many days he did. Quite often he did that on a regular basis. But it doesn't, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It just said in this particular day. But we can assume it probably happened on a regular basis. Anyway, they were, he was passing the Cave of Adullam at the time. And he thought, oh, there's a cave. I'll do a pee in the cave. So he went into the cave, undid his armor, zip, and then he did a pee in the corner. Now, David and his men were in the corner trying to dodge the, in the darkness. 
And the, and the Bible says, his men said to David, David, this is your enemy, take him out. And David's attitude was this, I will not raise my hand against him. David had the choice. It was with, he, Saul was within his power, and yet David's power was under control. He honored the existing king. Now David's, God vindicated David, and God eventually took Saul out. And then David went on to become one of the greatest kings and the great predecessor to Jesus. Now this is where we come to the biggest example of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the biggest example of meekness. Now if you're going to look at any of the Beatitudes, the biggest question you can ask yourself about any of the Beatitudes is this. What does this Beatitude tell me about God? Before looking at what it tells me about me, what does this Beatitude tell me about God? And this Beatitude tells me that God is meek. That's amazing. Because that's not the version of gods that the other religions have. The other makey-uppy gods that are around and the idols are aggressive gods, warrior gods, fighting gods, arrogant gods. But our God, he does fight his battles, but our God is meek. Looking at Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on the cross. This statement says that he emptied himself. This is God, the creator of everything, who rules and reigns everything, who made you and who made me. The Bible says that at a point in history, he took on flesh. Jesus was born. And in that moment, the Bible describes, he said, he emptied himself. What does that mean? It means that although he was fully God and fully man, he restricted his operations to just being that of a man. And he made himself dependent on the Father for his supply, for the miracles. He didn't speak out of his Godness when he caused great miracles to happen. He humbled himself and became a man. And he modeled for us what humility is all about. He had power, but he brought his power deliberately under control. In his ministry, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. We see him going into Jerusalem on a donkey. We see him loving people that no one else would love, associating with people that no one else would associate with. He said things like this, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. In every way, he didn't just act out of his own initiative. He waited on the father and let him take the lead. Now this didn't mean he wasn't confident. Meek didn't mean he was weak. We see the same Jesus making a whip of cords. When they came against him, he didn't defend himself. He said, that's fine. But when they came against his father's house, he made a whip of cords. And the next day, he kicked butt. He wasn't weak. He was strong. I reckon he was buff. He was a carpenter. He worked in building sites for many years. He wouldn't have been, you don't get away with being weak on building sites. Kind of weak blondie, kind of walking through. No, no. He was strong. And then we see him standing face to face with some of the most intimidating Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees. And he would, to their face in front of huge crowds of people, he would reprimand them for the hypocrisy. Now, you and I would have been utterly intimidated by environments like that. Aggressive people who would stone you at the blink of an eye, who had so much authority, and Jesus stood up confidently and rebuked them. He was not weak. It's just that his power was under control, and he knew when to use it, and he knew when to hold it back. And he operated in submission to the Father. In his death, we see the ultimate humility. The verse we read earlier says, he became obedient even to the point of death. He was humbled to the will of the Father. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. As he was hanging on the cross and people were hurling insults at him, as was the common, when people were being crucified, criminals would often curse and swear and hurl abuse at the mockers around the crosses. It was a horrible scene. Sometimes criminals being crucified would literally try and urinate on the crowds 
to try and, they couldn't do a thing. They would be utterly humiliated and they would try and get back and they would spit and it would be a horrible shouting match and a cursing and swearing match. But Jesus, being reviled on the cross, didn't revile. In fact, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Incredible humility. It says that while he suffered, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now that's your salvation, folks. If you're not saved here today, if you don't know that when you die, you're going to have eternity with him, you need to know that this, right, that, that's, your, that's your statement, that's your hope. Your sins, which is your problem, that's, Jesus loved you so much, he died for you on that cross, so you can be completely forgiven for all eternity and have a new life, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed, so you can also be miraculously healed by this act that Jesus did on the cross. You see, meekness doesn't seek revenge. It doesn't push your own agenda. It just trusts God. God will vindicate you if you need to be vindicated. In his resurrection, he displays meekness. And you see, if that would be me died on the cross by the, at the hand of the chief priest and Pilate, when I rose from the dead, I'd have knocked their door. Hi, Pilate, remember me? <laughs> yeah, honestly, you think, man, that's a big opportunity. Freak him out. Ha! It's me. But he didn't do that. He didn't have a point to make. He had a world to save. His agenda wasn't that. His agenda was, I want to save the world. What I did on the cross was to save the world. So he spent time with the disciples and he commissioned to make an impact. So how can we be meek people? Okay, we talked earlier about the progression. Poor in spirit leads us to mourning, brings humility. Here's, here's a couple of interesting things. Poor in spirit makes you know, I need a savior. Mourning over your sins makes you think, I need a savior. But meekness says, I need a Lord. You see, meekness is bringing your abilities and talents and skills and finances and resources and whole life and everything under God. You see, we all think, oh, I need a savior. We all like the idea of, get me to heaven, God, please. We all like that. But as soon as God crosses our will, we don't like that. Because we like being loose, free cannons. We like being wild horses running free. We like barging through, doing our thing, making our agenda happen. We, can, we get the poor in spirit. Oh, I need God. We get the blessed those who mourn. I'm a sinner. I need saved from hell. I need heaven, please, God. Be my savior. We like that because we're consumers. But the moment God crosses our will, and this is what he's doing here, blessed are the meek, Blessed are the people who bring their strengths, abilities, talent, and finances under God and say, God, be my Lord. But nevertheless, Lord and Savior go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. I encourage you to bring your abilities under God. Don't just use your abilities to advance your own agenda. God has given you great talents in life. Some of you are great people, people. Some of you are great pioneers. Some of you are great entrepreneurs. Some of you are great educators. Some of you are just great friends. You've got so many gifts, talents, and abilities. Each one different, and that's all God-given. And God gives you the choice what you do with them. But what we do is we act like we're possessors of these things rather than stewards of these things. The fact is God has entrusted these things to you. You didn't originate them. They came from God. And the challenge is be meek. Yield your talents and abilities to the God who gave you them in the first place. So instead of giving your best to the company, instead of giving your best to make your money, instead of giving your best to your education, how about God's house? How about the house of your father? How do your talents, how does your calling serve your God? So what about your money? You've got this money and you think, oh, it's my money. Don't talk about money, Peter. This is, I feel it crossing my will right now. Well, tough, we're going to talk about it. You see, God requires your everything. Everything. He made you. The fact is, you ain't got nothing unless it came from him. Everything you have got, like it or not, came from him. You are merely a steward of what he entrusted to you. And God's calling is this. Give a tithe. Give 10% back of what I have given you to the house of God. And then give an offering over and above that. 
Now, this might be my testimony. In my teenage years, I started tithing. I started tithing when I had not much coming in. Throughout times in life, I've been financially hard up at points, but I've kept tithing, no matter, sometimes very painfully. But my testimony has been this. The meek inherit the earth. God has provided for me and my family over and above whatever I could provide. Just now we're giving, on average, between 25 and 30% of our income every month. That's how we live, and that's what we're committed to do. We're here not for our agenda. And I'm, I'm not saying that to say, look at me, how cool am I? I'm saying, this is my testimony. As I've acknowledged that God is the provider of everything I have, and as I've tithed back to him, given to the house of God, sometimes given to missions and to help the poor and different things, I've found that God has been my supply. God has been my provider. Give your relationships to him. Instead of forcing through your agenda with your relationships, I want a husband, and if I don't get one at church, I'm going to go off and get one at the nightclub. Yeah, he'll be a good guy. Yeah, he'll be really cool. Uh, so how you doing, honey? <laughs> Man of real character and caliber there, yeah. Now, I know they're nuts here as well, girls. I know. We've got some men's events coming up. I'm going to knock them into shape. A bunch of weaklings. It's going to be cool. So, don't just push your own agenda. Go get it the way you want to get it. Submit yourself to God. He's got a brilliant plan for you. Do not doubt the plan of God. When he says wait, it's not because he doesn't want you to have. It's because he wants to have the best. It's because he wants you to inherit. So wait on the Lord. Humble yourself under him. Then the Bible says, they shall inherit the earth. Our vision as a church is to impact our city. We want to inherit Edinburgh alongside the other great churches in the city. We want to inherit the city. And you know, it's going to take a bunch of people who don't just know Jesus as their Lord. Save me from my weaknesses. It's going to be people who know him as, sorry, as their Savior, but who know them, him as their Lord. People who have said, my strengths are yours, God. My provision is yours. My life, everything is yours, God. Be Lord of every detail of my life. That's tough. But that's what it will take to impact a city. And that's our calling. That's what we're here to do. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My observation in life is this, that that's what happens. Abraham was meek. He went on to inherit a whole land. Then there was Moses. He was meek. He led the Israelites to the edge of the promised land to inherit. Then we see Joseph. He became prime minister over a land and rescued many lands. Then we see David under his rulership. He was a humble man under his rulership the territory of his kingdom expanded and took on much more territory. And then we see Jesus. Today, two billion people in this world claim to follow him. Humble people are ground-taking individuals. Jim Collins did a, 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 a book called From Good to Great. He studied companies that had gone from 10 years of average results in terms of the market to 10 years of market-beating results. And he asked the question, he found them in the Fortune 500 and he found them, he narrowed it down to about 12 companies and he analyzed what was it that caused them to go from average results to 10 years of market beating results, consistent market beating results. And he discovered a number of qualities, but the number one quality was this, he called it level five leadership. Here's a quote from the Harvard Business School Review, 2005, about level five leadership. The essential ingredient for taking a company to greatness is having a level five leader an executive in whom extreme personal humility blends paradoxically with intense professional will. Here you've got an individual who's deeply humble, but very determined. And that's what I see in these people in the Bible. It works. Humility takes grounds. Let me end with this great thought from Paul. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Say, all things belong to me. Whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world, or life or death, or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Paul starts by saying, so no one boasts in men. You know, it'd be crazy to say, ha, my house is bigger than yours if your daddy owned the whole city. That'd be a crazy boast. And you're the benefactor of his will. It says in 
Romans 8, 17. For we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. It says in Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with them also graciously give us all things? If you're Christ's, then according to the Bible, all things are already yours. And one day we will see that realized, but you don't need to fight your corner in life. Why are you worrying about my house is bigger than yours? Your father owns the universe. And he said, it's your son. You know, why are you worried about, oh, they're criticizing me. (laughs) You're an inheritor of the earth. Chill out. Bring your power under control and see the great things God does through you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom. Your wisdom completely cuts against the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says, fight your corner. Battle your way forwards. Run free, don't be submitted to anyone. The wisdom of the world reacts against the idea that we would be under God. A God who would ask us to submit every area of our life to him. And yet God, your wisdom is wise. So today God, we just want to take a a moment just now God, just to dedicate ourselves afresh to being submitted to you. God, many of us have acknowledged you as Savior. But in reality, we all find it hard in many areas to submit our strengths to you, our lives, our resources, our abilities to you. We want to press ahead with our own agenda rather than waiting for your agenda. Take a moment to respond, but just talk to God about that. God's asking more from you. He wants you to be blessed. Life works right when it's done His way. Just before God, just now, just make a decision before Him, just now, just to. Yield yourself to him. Tame that wild horse in you. Bring it under God's control. While people are praying and making their responses to God, there might be some people here. And today I've talked to you about how Jesus died on the cross to save you he died in your place he took your sins so you can get forgiveness and he rose again and he's alive now God wants to be close to you God wants to be in relationship with you and Jesus did that on the cross so that you could have a living eternal relationship with God so just while everyone else is praying their prayers I'm going to give you an opportunity today. If you're here and you know, I'm not in relationship with the Almighty. I'm not in relationship with God. Then I invite you just now just to pray a prayer with me. To make a commitment to Him. To accept what Jesus did for you on the cross. And to become an authentic follower of His from now on. If that's you today, you want to make that commitment, then just quietly under your breath repeat this prayer after me pray dear Lord God thank you for your amazing love for me thank you that because you love me you were willing to die on the cross for me and on the third day I believe you rose from the dead Jesus I believe you're alive right now Today I ask you to be my saviour. Forgive me for all my sins. Give me eternal life, I ask. And I also acknowledge that I need you to be my Lord. 
I yield my strengths, my ambitions, my future to you. From now on, instead of pursuing my agenda, with humility, I'm going to pursue your agenda. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, you made that commitment. I'd love the privilege of praying for you and asking God to bless you as you embark in this new life with him. In order to know who I'm praying for, before I pray, can you just identify yourself? Just while everyone else is praying, you just simply quickly raise your hands just nice and high and then put it down again. And then once I've seen the hands, I'll pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Just quickly, if you prayed that prayer, pop your hand up if you made that commitment to God. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? God, I want to thank you for my two friends today who in your presence have made a decision. Their decision is not just to ask you to be their saviour, but their decision is that they're going to follow you now and actively allow you to be the Lord of their life. Thank you for hearing their prayer. Thank you, Jesus, you died because you loved them. And in this moment, as they've asked you for forgiveness, your Bible's crystal clear that you grant forgiveness eternally. Thank you as they put their faith in you. The Bible says they now have eternal life. I pray now help them, God. Let this be the beginning of a new life for them. Let them pursue you with authenticity from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Stand. We're going to worship God just to end the service.